Hello, hello. Welcome to All Plotted Out, the My Little Pony Friendship is Magic podcast where I look at the later seasons of the show. And who knows, maybe more. My name is Pornhart, P-A-W-N. Thank you very much. Uh, I also go under the stick insect name, Ed, in which I attend a, a generic PG-13 American high school, which is frequently uh, threatened by demonic possession. So why exactly am I starting from the end of Season 5, of all places? Surely the logical place to start is the start of Season 1. Well, I did consider that, running through the whole thing. I've got plenty to say, and I am, have no shortage of love for the earlier seasons. In fact, Season 1 might still be my favourite of the whole lot. However, in general, I found that representation and love for the later seasons is pretty low. Undeservedly low, I think. Why the final two episodes of season five? Well, they're written by Josh Haber, who would go on to broadly become the showrunner uh, until the end of the show. I'm doing a disservice to a lot of other show staff, I realise there. But also, it forms part of a complete story, I feel, with the opening two episodes of season six. And I think they're appreciated best together. Just to get it out of the way, maybe to add a bit of colour, To illustrate my own biases, maybe, it might be sound for me to go through my experiences with the fandom and why I've ended up here in 2022. This is my book, and I'm going to read it! I got into the show, um, inorganically, I think, uh, in 2011, uh, about a month after season one aired, which honestly was a really good time to get into the show and to experience the fandom because there was this sudden boom of creativity in what felt like a very, very long summer between seasons, even though later seasons had far longer periods between episodes. But anyway, middle-class English kid. I'd been living and working up in Scotland for a while, uh, having a really lousy time, actually, because I wasn't very well. wasn't looking after myself very well. Uh, I had to move back home. I was living on sick pay because I was ill. So yeah, I was not, as one may suspect, part of the target demographic for the show. But the weird and wonky stars aligned that summer when I returned from visiting a friend who was going through a really, really rough time and I used my rather freed-up schedule to go and stay with him for a bit. Because friendship is magic. And yeah, things things were a bit rough circumstantially. But weirdly, it felt like I couldn't contain how... Upset and fed up I was with uh, with what was going on. And just when I returned, I started seeing all these things on the internet, these gifts and strange messages that seemed very at odds with the, uh, the sort of 4chan influence status quo that I was used to, the sort of family guy vibe that rotted the centre, the passion, the enthusiasm of 2000s culture. I remember distinctly seeing a gif everywhere of uh, Rainbow Dash waggling her tongue about, which turned out to be from the season one episode, A Bird in the Hoof. It was weird. It was bizarre. I presumed it was ironic somehow. It had to be mimetic. But there was a curious vivacity attached to it. And so I was like, "What, what on earth is this? And so... In this sort of crux period of my life where I started to get in touch with how I was feeling again after a long time of kind of locking it away, 
I started to watch. Well, I must have done, because there was a point where I finished, not long after. I remember a few key benchmarks from season one. I remember being charmed by the the lessons at the end of each episode, which I think a lot of people regard as a sort of eye-rolling holdover and a a sort of mandatory insertion based on the the educational, education and informative rating the show had for its first season. But I've heard these compared to uh, the sort of after-school messages you'd get from things like the the old G.I. Joe cartoons or Sonic Says, and I think that's inaccurate. Because those messages were very much how to be an appropriate citizen, how to be a law-abiding citizen, and how not to climb into a tumble dryer, which is a... It's good advice, I'll give it that, but I feel there is more generally resonant advice. And the difference with the messages... Uh, of the first season, on the whole, of of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, is that they were about interacting with others. They were about friendship, and they didn't treat the target demographic like idiots. Case in point, Boastbusters. Effectively, there's a braggadocious new pony on the block who's showing off by putting other people down... By, by using her limited abilities in a sort of humiliatory way. Basically, the, the epitome of, of arrogance as opposed to confidence. Now, what's wonderful about what the show does with this message is that the issue isn't that Trixie is arrogant, although that is obviously an issue. The issue is that Twilight doesn't want to be arrogant, and so she is not using her own abilities to make things better for others. It's very careful to mark out the difference between arrogance, putting other people down to make yourself look or feel better, and self-confidence, which is knowing your abilities and using them not only to further yourself, but to aid others around you. Now, that's not only a good message for kids. A good deal of the adults that I know could really benefit from that. I could really benefit from that. Similarly, on patronising message from Apple Book season, it is really important that you are there to help your friends, but it is equally important that you let your friends help you. Again, I wish this were a lesson learnt by most of the adults in my life, myself included. I remember a, another nice touch, which was against type, I would assume from whatever snatches of the earlier seasons I had seen and had no interest in, that all of these ponies would be best friends and it would all be hugs and cuddles and they'd all be just, without reason, gravitating towards each other and being fundamentally pleasant and non-judgmental. What's nice about this show is not only that you are shown some of the more abrasive elements of each character, but also... It is illustrated that they're not all friends to begin with. You know, even though a lot of them seem to have known each other for a while. Like, Rainbow Dash doesn't seem to like Pinky very much from the outset. Rarity and Applejack seem to be at loggerheads because of their differences a lot of the time. But these sort of gradually evolve. It's not just the journey of the protagonist into learning to interact with others more bountifully. (laughs) 
And so relationships are forged throughout the course of the season, which is a really solidly well-plotted and alarmingly consistent season of children's telly. One of the fundamental things that actually appealed to me about the show is that it was a kid's TV series that didn't bore the pants off me. I mean, I didn't watch a lot of kids' TV when I was a kid. Perhaps I should have been uh, supervised a little bit more. But I would really gravitate towards the sort of stuff that my parents found funny, even if I didn't understand the touch points of it, you know. My favourite shows were like Red Dwarf, at Bottom. I'd laugh along with, uh, have I got news for you? Because it sure seemed witty. <laughs> even if I didn't have a Cake. clue who Michael Portillo was. So it wasn't a sort of nostalgia for the cartoons of yore that drew me in. I mean, obviously I was huge into The Simpsons. Uh, I, I don't know that that will ever change. It's it's such a, a foundational show for people of my generation. And for the generation younger than me, I feel. Although they've been uh, treated a little more roughly in terms of the actual quality and consistency of the show. Those classic seasons really stand up. My nephew, who's, who's very young, single figures, he, he loves the show. I mean, he's, he's very much into the, um, the Treehouse of Horror stuff at the moment, but that, that will evolve. But anyway, sidetracking here. What really finally hit me over the head, a point of no return that I'd reached in my watching of the show, came mid-season one. Um, and it came with the episode uh, Suited for Success by Charlotte Fullerton. Because, and it wouldn't be the last time the show would do this, it sort of subverted expectations. Maybe I'll revisit this episode on a future instalment of the show, possibly. But essentially, there's nothing encouraging or prepossessing about it if you look at the, if you look at the plot. It sounds like stereotypical, frilly, inconsequential, quote-unquote, girly fluff. It's a story about a character who's kind of abrasive in her aloofness, her pretentiousness. She's a fashion designer. A lot of things that seem very stereotypical in some ways. The story is basically about her making dresses for all of her friends. Now this sounds appalling. This sounds appalling. And I'm not just talking about as a male who shouldn't conventionally be interested in this sort of thing. I'm talking about for a lot of a lot of young women, a lot of girls even in, in this day and age, you would look at that and feel mildly repulsed, probably, and feel pandered to. But then you watch the episode and you realise not only do the people who are making the show absolutely want this show to land in the best possible quality, with the best possible production values that they can muster from very limited budget and resources, using, of all things, Flash, um, it also subverts your expectations of a character, not by changing the character, but by shedding a new light on what they do. Now, Rarity seemed to be doomed from the outset to be my least favourite of the main six. Sherlock Fullerton, wittily, pacily, shows that Rarity's urge to create fashion, to create looks, could easily be interpreted as superficiality. But ultimately, it's revealed that she does it because she wants to bring out the best elements in the people 
that she sees. And the problem with this is that she wants so much to impress her friends that they end up overriding her creative process. She gets stressed out of her mind and she ultimately has her vision, which was probably bang on the money, corrupted because of her desire to please. And it ends up working for nobody. There's an ultimate redemption where having been castigated from the fashion community, her friends realise their error and actually persuade some of her fashionista peers to come and witness another fashion show, according to Rarity's original vision. A fashion show which allows the production design to really shine. Uh, The amount of effort put into making that, not just within the ideas of assumed beauty, which is a bit of a trope of, uh, of, of, of Western animation, that something is beautiful to look at because the characters say it is so, even though its realisation on the screen might be hideous. That is not the case here. From storyboarding uh, through to the colour design and the lighting, it's, it's beautiful to look at. And so it nicely ties up the package and you're with it 100%. And it seems that the voice actors are with it 100%, the animators are with it 100%, and it's still one of my favourite episodes of the show. It is still one of my favourite episodes of television. And it succeeds in spite of all expectations. And I think, in a nutshell, that is what makes that first season so special, so important to me, and so important to a lot of people, I think. Because it undermines your own expectations about how you will feel about something, if you let it. At its best, the show is excellent at actually providing reasons why characters can be annoying or off-putting while simultaneously showing their strengths. They can exist together, which is uh, it's actually a, a, a tricky tightrope to, to walk even for a lot of quote-unquote adult television, let alone something that's, that's meant effectively for little girls. And one more sort of big season benchmark, the, the finale, which is just, uh, it, it shows how the show can subvert tropes themselves. It is set out like a sort of Disney thing with a, a big rousing song, one of Daniel Ingram's best, I think. Um, the whole season has been built around expectations for this big event, the Grand Galloping Gala. And I'm not going to spoil too much in case you've not seen it. Oh, you've seen it, come on. But expectations are subverted in a way that doesn't feel mean-spirited or flippant or unduly meta because it still comes back to the core message of the show, which is all about friendship, about cooperation, about working through difficulties in a way that usually, not always, doesn't seem trite, doesn't seem patronising, and seems to make sense given the characters we're presented with. This wasn't the subversion for its own sake of a lot of quote-unquote adult animation at the time. So yeah, it was refreshing. And it honestly filled me with a sort of silliness and innocence that I didn't think I had access to. It was a sort of nostalgia, but for something I hadn't experienced. And it sort of refreshed me and went right in line with the sort of emotional awakening I was experiencing. That sounds quite pretentious, but it's it's really as simple as that. My emotions were finally coming out. 
and this big, bright, embracing show nicely tied in with that. It was the the rallying flag for it, in my mind. I attended meetups for the first time for anything in my life. I'd never really been that attached to anything. I'd never really had any particular fandom before. There were things I very much enjoyed, but I, I never sought to go much beyond the product itself. But here I get the impression that I wasn't alone in being inspired to come out of myself more as a result of this. I started writing music again uh, because I wanted to express something of the, uh, of the optimism that it gave me for once. Now, I know a lot of people who had struggled with interpersonal relationships, a lot of people who are quite far on the autism spectrum who found it fundamentally difficult going into crowds of people or associating with others, who would go out to these meetups and mingle and, and revel in this, this show and its joy and its silliness. And uh, yeah, on the whole, it was a really positive thing. And I think that shouldn't be forgotten. I, I don't have to whitewash anything uh, in order to say that. And what is quite pleasing is that the fandom is still going on. And uh, there seem to be new generations getting engaged. And I'm not just talking about the new series. I mean, this year has provided, to my mind, two of the best Pony music releases ever. Uh, one of which is, is remarkably high profile, actually, for the community. Violet Pony's new record. And the, the other, which probably should be, uh, which is a EP slash mini album called Elements by Remake. Both of these are on Spotify. Both of them, even if you're not into the fandom, are really good albums by their own right. Uh, and couldn't be more different from each other, really, in any way, shape or form. I'm not quite sure if there is a fandom that has inspired quite so much creativity over such a broad spectrum of media as, as this one. I'm sure a lot of members of fandoms would say the same about theirs. But I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the brony dumb's kind of hard to beat. Loads of art. Loads of music. Loads of fan animations. Fan games. And immense fan fictions. <laughs> Another thing I had absolutely no interest in before I joined the fandom. It even sounds weird for me to say that. Joined the fandom. And yet, I can't ignore it, really. This show means something to me. And as implied before, those early seasons have been covered a lot. Uh, there are some terrific analysis videos online about those early seasons. Um, th there are too many to mention, but obviously a shout out must go to Silver Quill. Uh, his analyses of the first five seasons in particular uh, are excellent. He's very thoughtful, very well read, a nice balanced presence, and uh, witty without being too vulgar. Because <laughs> you wouldn't want that. So while I don't think I can offer his degree of insight or perspective, I would like to try and give what I've got to shed deserved light on the, the later seasons of the show, because some of my favourite stuff is in here, as I think I might have mentioned. Rather melodramatic, if you ask me. So anyway, let's get contemporary after all of that chutney. It's 2015. Uh... 
I was doing a master's degree and uh, falling in and out of pretty awful retail jobs at the same time. And uh, season five, which acts as a sort of bookend to a lot of the themes introduced, was really sort of reigniting my enthusiasm for the show. I'd already been taken aback by how touched I was by a couple of the episodes. You probably know exactly which two I'm referring to, if you are experienced with the show. If not, one of them, rather cunningly, manages to deal with the concept of grief without being able to talk about death or even have a character die, which is something of an impressive feat. And the other, which actually provided a surprise conclusion to a five-season-long arc. Which, in itself, and probably aided by a, a very long, very bad shift at work, I watched over my tea one night and uh, teared up a bit. Yeah, teared up a bit. Over, over a kid's show. After Lauren Faust had very capably uh, set the foundations in season one, Megan McCarthy had done a terrific job through seasons three to five, of, uh, of, of upholding the, the vision of the show, I think, even in spite of requirements foist on it by Asbro, which did happen. Sometimes damaging, sometimes meh, unnoticeable, really. The episodes we'll be looking at today, The Cutie Remark, episodes one and two. This two-parter picks up a plot thread that was introduced in the Season 5 opening two-parter, the Cutie Map, which introduced Starlight Glimmer, who we'll be talking about more in a minute. And it seems to serve dual roles of closing one chapter and providing a sort of celebration of what had been introduced in the first few seasons, while introducing a number of new elements that Josh Haber and his cast and crew would be mining more thoroughly in coming seasons. Oh, what joy to talk with another creature. It's been so long. You must tell me everything about you. There's so much to say, so much to do. Oh, look at me. I'm going on and you haven't seen. I mean, have you seen? What what am I saying? Of course you haven't. So just, uh, I will just follow me. So how are we going to do this? Well, I'm going to introduce the episode with the bog standard bare bones IMDB synopsis. I don't want to get too bogged down reciting the plot. I don't think that's interesting listening. But as a point of comparison, I'm going to uh, introduce the IMDB score for the episodes, in part because I want to try and vainly manufacture a sense of tension between what the quote-unquote general consensus is and, uh, and, and what this lonely spud feels. Maybe I'll agree. Maybe I won't. Side point, there's lots of cutie mark gags in the show. Do you think in an early draft one of the writers ever did a CMC-based episode that was called Death Cab for Cutie? That had had to occur to someone. What would the plot of Death Cab for Cutie be? Who would write it? Yeah, you know what? Email. Email the show at allplottedout at outlook.com. No capitals, all one word all plotted out at Outlook.com. And yeah, tell me what happens in this fictional episode. But anyway, time for business. The Cutie Remark, parts one and two, by Josh Haber, originally aired November the 28th, 2015. 
Starlight Glimmer casts a time travel spell as a new plot for revenge against Twilight Sparkle. The IMDB consensus from about 500 odd votes is 8.6 for episode 1 and 8.4 for episode 2, so it seems to be generally liked. Right, so yeah, Starlight Glimmer returns. Um, in a main role for the first time since she was introduced at the start of the season. She had little Easter egg appearances in the background of certain episodes, which is pretty cool. A little detail for your uh, for your low-res Shout Factory DVDs there. Unlike many antagonists at the end of their two-parters, she was not redeemed and befriended by the, the, the main six at the end of the Cutie Map Part 2. Uh, she got away. I really liked the opening two-parter. It was quite funny. It was, it was quite a sort of dark and interesting concept for the show, which uh, introduced a bit of sort of political philosophy. I might be overstating it there, but the, there was first and foremost some obvious 1984 parodies. The idea of them going to this town where effectively cutie marks were banned because they thought that it encouraged discrimination. Uh, and obviously uh, Twilight and the gang enter the town and uh, they have different ideas. They think that the individual specialties of each character actually enhance things. Starlight Glimmer is the is the leader of the village. Uh, some are more equal than others, as they say, uh, who hadn't relinquished her cutie mark but pretended she had, but seemed to genuinely believe in this idea of equality. She ended up tricking the main six into relinquishing their own cutie marks and uh, basically imprison them and try to brainwash them. But anyway, now she's back, uh, evidently with revenge on her mind. So how does Josh Haber put the pieces together here and provide a sort of big bang send-off to the, to the McCarthy era? Uh, nothing to do with communist witch hunts. Although, ironically, there are communist parallels in the cutie map. Never mind. This is the second time travel story. The show has attempted. The first was back in season two with uh, M.A. Larson's It's About Time, which I, uh, I I don't rate too highly. It seems almost like they had a cool idea for a story in that flush of confidence and excitement that came with season two after the show had become a big hit, but without the same sort of concrete planning and focus uh, of, of, of season one which isn't inherently a problem. There's a, there's a lot to enjoy in season two, although I, I do confess I don't rate it quite as highly as a lot of other fans. Um, but it's about time. I, I felt was more more concept <laughs> than substance, really. Not, not a huge fan of that one. I don't think it's necessarily one of M.A. Larson's best stories, but this one seems to have a little more purpose to it. Um... Well, if not purpose, it certainly has higher stakes, I feel, that are more effectively conveyed. In some ways, it is a, a celebratory episode that's full of references to um, to the show, uh, which, which kind of makes sense for its place here. It is a sort of rounding up, as I mentioned, of, of a lot of the themes that have run through the first few seasons. There's a lot of character references and reappearance. They do kind of make sense in the storyline, though, so I'm not really complaining about that. You could possibly levy the uh, the criticism that a young kid might not understand all of these references if they hadn't religiously watched the show from start to finish so far, 
which to be honest, for, for single-figure kid viewers with something like Boomerang or Treehouse or something, it's not, it's not tremendously likely, is it? But don't get me wrong, I very much appreciate the amount of uh, respect um, show, this story has for the show as a whole and for the characters and elements that, that, that really appealed to people. And rather, like Megan McCarthy did, I think it it proves that Josh Haber can very much carry off that balance of, of sort of innocent fun with, with real excitement and, as I mentioned, stakes, which was very much Lauren Faust's MO from the outset. So there's just a few stray observations here. Weirdly, I've just come off the back of watching Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2 for the first time in eons. Applejack's voice is lower. Um... That's to be expected. Maybe it happens with a lot of the characters. It's certainly to be expected with uh, the Cutie Mark Crusaders. But I do notice that Tara Strong evidently has gradually been pitching Twilight's voice up. She's quite low and sort of sardonic uh, in the first season. And this is a little more sprightly. It's more in the back of the nose and throat. There also seem to be a lot of Doctor Who references in this story, which makes sense. It's a time travel story. It's not the first time that the show has referred to it. Um, but there's, there's a little more on the nose, perhaps here with the with the time tunnel when Twilight and Spike are first pulled into the parallel time stream, and also the the visit to the kind of creepy, desolate planet of the future. It, it very much reminds me of uh, of a similar scene in the Tom Baker Doctor Who serial Pyramids of Mars. The difference between this and uh, Friendship is a Magic Parts One and Two, the the opening to season one, is that that was broadcast in separate instalments. Part one and two were a week apart. This, like most, if not all, of the later two-parters was broadcast in one chunk. And uh, it feels like it has a more coherent flow. Uh, the, the act structure isn't quite as obtrusive or obvious as it is in earlier episodes. Uh, I mean, I love... The, the, the opening two-parter written by Lauren Faust. But, the you know, the there's a clear differentiation between Act 1, where the, the characters are introduced, and Act 2, where their usefulness, effectively, is introduced. And particularly Return of Harmony, the Season 2 opening two-parter, where Episode 1 is exposition, and Episode 2 is, is the fun bit. <laughs> Now, this is quite a complex story, more complex than either of those previous two. Um, it is a time-travelling, uh, changing history, you know, butterfly effect. One small change can cause massive ripples in the future kind of thing, which is, is quite bold. There is a fair bit of exposition, but as with those earlier episodes, it, it doesn't slow things down because it it always delivers them in a pacey way, where there's something else going on, or it, it it offsets the talkiness with humour. At the very least, it's often just done in motion. There's a scene towards the end of episode one, where in order to deliver her big monologue about revenge, Starlight Glimmer has trapped Twilight and Spike in a massive magical ice block, and they're frozen, and their eyes are panically following her around, but they're, they're gradually disappearing below the clouds, which can't sustain their weight. And halfway through, she has to break off to actually go beneath the cloud and finish her evil speech before kicking the block and having it fall down to Equestria. Now, this scene does illustrate a problem uh, with the episode, which is... Um, particularly the first episode here, it actually gets better in the second episode, I feel... 
the solution or explanation for a lot of what is happening is is kind of weak. It's almost besides the point. Having stood by and attempted nothing while Starlight was doing her entire speech, which does does take a fair while, now that they are plummeting down to Earth in the in the magical block, um, Twilight just gets out of it by using her magic. Great. Why didn't she do that before? Because plot. Because exposition. There are also a couple of explanations which are just nonsense in this. I mean, Twilight's explanation for why the map has actually come with them in the alternate timeline is is just... It's just nonsense. I mean, I had to make a note of it to try and remind myself because I always forget what it is she says. It is something about, oh, the Tree of Harmony must have known... Therefore, it's it sent it across because what? Anyway, I, I I think it's nonsense. Whether it matters or affects things too much is another matter. I think one of the strengths of this, as opposed to some of earlier episodes, it, it, as opposed to it's about time, the earlier time travel story I mentioned, is that it's not plot centric. It is more character centric. It is a character based episode. It's built around the conflict between Twilight and Starlight, both in terms of attitudes and in terms of ideology. Also, as Starlight changes the future, not only is she threatening the whole of Equestria by taking away the elements of harmony, which is fundamentally a risk to the safety of Equestria itself, the changes she's making which effectively mean that Twilight has never met her friends, mean that she can't even communicate with her friends properly. And there's a sense of emotional wrench to that. It really feels despairing. It really feels high stakes. So the little explanations about why little time thingamabobs are happening, I don't think it's that important. It also improves upon the earlier episode, which the fans, well, a lot of fans loved because it had its... uh, Twilight returning from the near future looking like a solid snake gag and all of the the fun, the limited fun that came from that and one-ups it by by showing a number of of, of alternative uh, versions of the main characters but as I mentioned, the the actual emotional stakes are higher the first person that, that Twilight and Spike actually find is where they should be in the altered timeline is good old Honest Applejack who is, for sure, working at the farm. But it has become a sort of industrialised factory that just produces slurry to feed the rebel soldiers. It's the same, but it has been mutated. Um, And Applejack, who's never met Twilight and Spike before in this, along with a lot of the rest of their friends, is very down to business. Uh, But because she is who she is deep down, there's a little bit of reception there. Uh, There's a great recollection scene where AJ's telling Twilight and Spike about how the Crystal Empire engulfed the kingdom which is beautiful to look at um, but also has this sort of goth punk soldier rainbow dash with this like bit of ear like torn off um, and later on she's uh, she's one of uh, Nightmare Moon's servants and she has like a shaved head which is pretty awesome it's very superficial this but it's cool as befitting the character. Rarity is, is just unpleasant. It, it takes her sort of superficial hoity-toity elements up to ten now that she's in the service of the Queen of the Night. There are some dodgy bits of exposition 
mid-episode one that does drag this down a little bit, but it always retains its pace. It, it's it's always entertaining, even if it doesn't always make sense, and a couple of the very best scenes in this episode are right at the end. There's a fantastic scene where, in one of the many instances where Twilight and Spike return to the Phillyhood race, where uh, Rainbow Dash performed the, the all-important sonic rain boom that drew everybody together, she finds Starlight is taking on her matronly role again and talking to a couple of the bullies. And she's actually diffused them and stopped them from picking on a young Fluttershy by saying it's like it's not, it's not right to tease people about their differences. And then she goes on to say, well, wouldn't it be great if we all lived in a place where everyone was equal and there was nothing to tease? And what is wonderful about this is Twilight doesn't know what to say. She keeps digging a hole. Like she doesn't quite know how to respond to the ideological statements without sounding like she's encouraging bullying and encouraging highlighting of difference in a negative way. I mean, perhaps not quite enough is made of this, certainly in episode two, but I can understand why it needs to focus on the, uh, the, the starlight vendetta part of it more than any sort of ideological underpinnings. But perhaps best of all, that illustrates the, 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 the rather crafty balance that Josh Haber forges in these stories is the scene where Twilight is desperately trying to, uh, <laughs> to encourage the, the, the young Rainbow Dash, who's never met her, uh, not yet, uh, to do her sonic rainbow anyway, and is just coming off as a total creeper. And they pu- <laughs> they push this as far as is probably acceptable, and it is really quite funny because it it maintains its innocence while while just looking really bad in a lot of ways. Um, but also just good on you, Rainbow Dash. Stranger danger, yeah. I'd be having none of it. You should be having none of it. So she, she she quickly makes tracks elsewhere from this this insane alicorn from the future. I should note that this is a uh, not the first returning villain, um, and there's been a couple before. There was uh, Discord and uh, the great and powerful Trixie returning in season three. Um, while I thought that the Discord return was actually very well balanced and actually did a good job of introducing him into the regular cast as a sort of chaotic protagonist. I thought that Trixie's return, which is a lot of fun in some ways, is kind of pointless and felt just a bit like a nod to the fans uh, and not much else. I have no problem with that. I know people sort of backhandedly criticise the show for, for wanting to make nice gestures for the fandom, which I think, you know, just please recognise the kindness of the gesture in that. But I think when there's not much to back it up, it, it doesn't exactly stand up on repeat viewings, which is why I think Magic Jewel, which is the sort of bi-popular demand return of Trixie, doesn't really have any effect on anyone. It basically ends in the same place that her first appearance did, and can all but be taken out were it not for some stray references to specific MacGuffins later in the series, because Trixie does return, and I would say that her second reappearance is uh, is much, much stronger. But anyway. It's not over yet. Episode two, uh, it feels like it's a direct continuation. It's, it's almost like it, it, this might as well just be one 45-minute episode. It, it's not broken in half. Um... And it doesn't feel like there's a contrived cliffhanger 
because it does ramp up the stakes even into part two. Um, And what is really cool about it is that the damage that is being caused is not actually necessarily just from Starlight Glimmer. She's rather blinded by revenge and she doesn't quite realise the effect she's having. And she is wearing Twilight down. Twilight says at one point, it's like, I can't, I can't win against you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep trying, uh, and just keeps trying to persuade Starlight that the more they fight, and the more they affect the past, and the more they drag each other through the past, the more this is having an effect on God knows what. And every time Twilight goes back to the future, forgive the pun, it gets worse and worse, and so it becomes like a stalemate situation where Twilight isn't trying to win. She isn't trying to show her superiority or or make any ideological point. It's just stop this. We don't know how far this is going to go. And again, there's a lovely turnaround, which unusually for a kids show, it has the villain positing a, an ideology that actually has a kernel of truth in it, and that makes a great villain. I feel. Because the conceit of the episode, and I think Josh Haber is aware that it is quite conceited, is that the main six and the bond they share is the most important thing in the whole world. Speaking of a Doctor Who parallels here. Um, and so at one point, Starlight says, spare me your ego. She literally says that. How are you so important? How is it that one group of friends can be the most important thing in the world. She does have a point. It is quite a conceit and must be very difficult to swallow. There is, rather like the the season four finale, a a straight battle uh, on a couple of occasions between the two main characters where they are just resorting to just throwing bolts at each other, effectively, and just knackering each other, really. This might not be a popular opinion, uh, I know Twilight's Kingdom is, is a very, very popular episode. It is in the top ten uh, on IMDb. Uh, I don't necessarily think it deserves that in comparison to other episodes. In fact, I don't think it does. But I think that the way that the Twilight and Starlight physical altercations are portrayed in this are so much better uh, and and more purposeful than the sort of fireworks show Dragon Ball Z tribute of the Tyrek versus Twilight fight at the end of season four, which is just there as a sort of a, a bit of visual fun. Um, it's th- There's no sort of emotional underpinning. Um, I've always thought it weird in, the, in that battle how Twilight just has a fixed expression, which is so contrary to the spirit of the show. One of its main assets is the expressiveness of its characters both in terms of the voice acting and how this is channeled through the animation, little eye movements, and that is all over this battle. They look fatigued, they look like they're wearing themselves out quickly, they look too, they look desperate and fragile. And so the stakes are much higher, I feel, than in that earlier example. What's more, this feels more exciting, A, because it's sort of portioned out into different parts of the episode and broken up by more sort of visits to the skewed alternate timelines but also there is this slightly humorous but equally uh, significant rainbow dash subplot running through it they are trying well one side is trying to sabotage the young rainbow dash while the other is trying to save her effectively while there is this 
desperate battle going on in the middle of it. The darkness of this episode, which which is really ramped up in episode two, where, uh, as mentioned before, they visit the the ultimate uh, bad timeline where everything has been destroyed because of what the two of them are doing to the to the past. Um, is is just it, it works really well in contrast with the humour, which really pops. A lot of the stuff with Philly Rainbow Dash is very funny in this, and it works as a lovely counterbalance. And I think it works because there is this sense of darkness and and tension in the battle that's going on here. Now, you might think I'm going to to uh, give this a, a real, like, solid, like, all-embracing high score. And I love this episode, this two-parter. I really enjoy it. But it cannot be denied that the last ten minutes or so... Um, well, it's probably about the last eight minutes, really. Drag things down a bit. I don't necessarily think that this was how Josh Haber wanted it. And the only reason I say that is because these themes are returned to in the very next episode and sort of re-explored in a more satisfying way, I feel. But maybe just in order to tie it up as a single episode, perhaps Starlight explains to Twilight why she's so angry why she's so determined to have revenge and first and foremost uh, I can't beat Silver Silver Quill's uh, (laughs) description of of the triggering incident for Starlight being the mild inconvenience of her childhood (laughs) and it's right I mean uh, the performance um, by Kelly Sheridan sorry Kelly I had to had to Wikipedia that um in future seasons, I, I, I'll be honest, I love her depiction. I love what they do with the character. Here, it, it's kind of all over the place, I think, because they're not really sure how to write Starlight yet. So the, the rather limp explanation, or apparently limp explanation, for, for why Starlight is acting the way she is, which should be more of a an emotional justification at the very least, even if it's not actually an ethical one, is sort of at odds with how screamy and over-the-top the performance of this is. I mean, it's she's she's gone off the rails at this point, explaining something that's, you know, not exactly earth-shaking. And when she is actually delivering the exposition about it, it's almost like she doesn't believe it herself, and I don't think this is deliberate. It's just... Even in its explanation, it doesn't seem like any form of justification at all. Um, Not only is she accepted into the fold very quickly, but the the tone of the show just changes on a sixpence, and they have to include the reconciliation, the uh, the the debate between the the main cast about accepting. Uh, Starlight into the fray, which there's not enough time to show this on screen, so it feels sort of doubly rushed. But also there's a song at the end, which just... There have been some great songs in the show, and they feel like they nicely fold in to the episode and create a nice little centre point for the themes. This just feels like it's been tagged on the end because they feel it should be there. I'll be honest, I always forget this episode has a song in it. And that's pretty unusual. It isn't one of Daniel Ingram's best. It's not really got a memorable chorus. It is, again, just a bit of sort of hurried exposition. I do like some of the rousing imagery, but 
it does illustrate probably why it was put there because this was the end of season five it is a sort of bookend of the first big chapter of the of the show but it feels hurried um it's not magical mystery cure kind of hurried not that i wish to cast undue uh shade on that episode but Again, I get the impression that other things were were dictating how quickly this had to be wrapped up. I do think uh, this show is best looked at in the context of the season six two-parter, also written by Josh Haber, which, having rewatched that story, The Crystalline, for the first time um, since it aired, I think, recently, I, my estimation of that show has gone through the roof, in part because it actually elevates the value of this one. It actually makes the conclusion to season five make a little more sense. But that said, this is the conclusion to season five and must be taken on its own merits. Just be honest with them. I'm sure they'll understand where you're coming from. On the whole, I really enjoy it. It is very entertaining. There's a lot of, 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 of sort of self-referentiality, but there is a sense of occasion, so I can forgive that. And it also is, is fun. It just, that's how I can excuse it. It's fun and it has stakes. Um, yeah, it's very entertaining. Unfortunately, it is slightly undermined by that finale. So, yeah, um, between the two, I'd probably give episode one. 8.5, episode 2, uh, maybe a 7.5, because actually on the whole I enjoy episode 2 more, but that ending, mm. uh, so it balances out at an 8. So yeah, really good stuff, w- with reservations, um, but yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a, he does a good job on the whole. I'll be honest, and this, this would have surprised me before my recent rewatch, it is the next episode that I, I'm looking forward to revisiting more i think um this sort of adds context to it um and i think my reactions to the episodes that follow kind of emblematize my reasons for doing the show and starting it where it starts because it feels a lot of the latest stuff feels quite fresh because it's relatively untrodden by a lot of the fandom or the analytical side of the fandom at least and it really deserves some some more sunshine. <laughs> oh, there there are lulls to come, rest assured. While, as I've said before, these following seasons contain some of my very favourite episodes, some of my favourite character dynamics, and some really bold and rewarding changes to the show, there are some lulls. Um, and some, by the quality of the show, some pretty subpar episodes. But that all all makes it more interesting, doesn't it? You can't see the dawn without the night time. That's a botched metaphor, but you know what I mean. So yeah, that's the first instalment of the showdown. How's how's my driving? If you want to comment, if you want to give your own thoughts on the episode, or anything about the show, the podcast, anything pony related, please, I, I really, really want to hear from you. So, yeah. Got any problems, troubles, conundrums, or any other sort of issues, major or minor, that I, as a good friend, could help you solve? Send an email through to allplottedout at outlook.com. That's all one word, no capitals. Allplottedout at outlook.com. 
And yeah, that uh, that sounded like a shelf has just collapsed somewhere. So, um, without further ado, keep well and uh, join us again soon. Maybe the later books are slightly more realistic than I gave them credit for.